0: We're going to start in Genesis chapter 6, read verses 5 to 14, then I'm going to Genesis 7, verse 12, then 15 and 16, and then finish Genesis 9, 11 through 13. Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth.
1: You may be seated. Thanks. Let's pray. God, thank you for the chance uh, now to come before your word, and we thank you that you have Uh, given us the chance uh, to teach our children the Word, that you have given us the chance to study your Word on our own, and the chance to be challenged by it corporately as we gather here uh, uh, underneath the, the teaching, preaching of your Word. God, may it convict us and challenge us and strengthen our faith and help us to grow in you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Water is about as common of a thing as imaginable, probably second only to the air that we breathe. You probably don't think a whole lot about water except on hot days or when you're really thirsty. But we pretty much take it for granted that we've always got access to water. Uh, we know, we, we don't think about it, we know it covers uh, the vast majority of our earth in the form of saltwater oceans. Uh, we enjoy swimming in it in the ocean or in lakes or the pool. Uh, we know that our, our body is dependent on it. It's essential to our life. Um, most of us realize we probably should be drinking more water than we do, but we like our Cokes and Diet Cokes and Mountain Dews and coffee, and so we don't drink as much as we should. Uh, but we know water is important, and we probably take it for granted so much that we don't really... We, we probably may, you, you may know this, but you probably don't think about it often, uh, that the reality globally is that not everybody has the access you and I have to clean drinking water, uh, rough estimates, about 2.2 billion people in the world don't have access, regular accessible access, to clean drinking water. And that is uh, more important than just the, uh, you know, convenience of being able to swim in a pool or the delight in a, uh, something cold on a hot day. Access to clean drinking water is a matter of life and death. Uh, The estimates are about 700, over 700 kids die every day who are ages five and younger from preventable diseases that could be solved by basic sanitation solutions, including clean water. So hundreds are dying every day because of a lack of access to something you and I probably take for granted, which is being able to turn on the faucet and have clean water that's not going to hurt us. As much as we take that for granted, we probably take something for granted even more, and that is the access to God's Word. We take it for granted that we have a Bible printed in our language, that we have churches accessible to us, we have the proclamation of God's Word, we have access not just to clean water, but we have access to what the Bible calls living water, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we all, because where we live, by the grace of God, we have access to both. Clean and drinking water. Every day around the world, there are thousands and thousands of people who are dying without access to living water. estimates are over 3 billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus, that they don't know the living water you and I have access to. And today and this week, we want to be talking about both things, clean and living water. Tonight we begin Camp Kidfinity by the sea, and so uh, the next four nights we're going to take a Bible passage that happens by the sea or around the sea or through the sea or on the sea or by water of some kind, and what we want our children to see and all of us to see is how God works through water and what God does to teach and change and mold His people and how God brings judgment and God brings salvation. And that ultimately, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, as he tells the woman at the well in John 4, you will never be thirsty again. Jesus has come that we may have life and have it to the fullest, that we may have a relationship with God, which is his way of, uh, that's what he means when he says we can have living water and will never be thirsty again. Tonight, our our, the first passage our our kids are going to study is Noah and the Ark, and so that's what I want want to share with you today. Next on Tuesday of this week, uh, we're going to do the woman at the well, which is why there's been a well here for the last couple weeks, and that's where we'll be next Sunday. And so we're talking this week on Sunday mornings on either end and throughout the week, how we can never how how through Jesus Christ, He's made a way for us to never be thirsty again. Much like we probably take water for granted in our lives, we probably take Noah's Ark for granted in our Bibles, do we not? We think of Noah's Ark as the most simple uh, nursery childhood story in the Bible. It's, I mean, how, how hard is it? It's pretty simple. It's beautiful. It makes good artwork in our nurseries. We've got this guy that's got a boat full of two kinds of every—two of every animal— and just the chaos that that would be, and all the color pictures you can picture with that. And, and there was this flood, and the boat survived, and at the end the boat comes down, and Noah and all the animals come out, and there's a rainbow in the sky, right? Would well, that take me, two three sentences to tell you that story? It's simple, it's beautiful, it's, it's clear, right? And we paint our nurseries with it. Uh, and yet the Bible takes four chapters <laughs> to tell that story. So much so that I had to give a summary of it to Alex, so that he didn't you know, have to read the whole thing. This is a, a long story, so the Bible doesn't waste words. The Bible doesn't doesn't just fill up space so that it takes you longer to read it. The Bible has a purpose for taking that long. So I imagine that we just like we might take water for granted or access to the church for granted, we might take Noah's ark for granted, and not really dive into this like we should. So just to give a there, there are more important things, but just simple things. I, I wonder how well you, you know this story. You, how many how many animals were or how many kind of every kind of animal how many came on the boat? Two, right? We just read, he just read Genesis six nineteen. Of every living thing of all the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So two of every kind, right? Except, we keep reading a little further, Genesis 7, 7 2 and 3, Sorry. take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate. So clean animals, so probably things like goats and rams and sheep, I imagine. Uh, not just two, but 14 of all those kinds of animals. Those are details we might skip. What about how long did the flood last? How well do you know this story? Is it, it rained 40 days and 40 nights, right? Genesis uh, 7, 12. The rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. That's how long the rain fell, but they were in the ark a whole lot longer. Go back through it. Noah entered the ark on the 600th year of his life on the 17th day of the second month. That's Genesis seven eleven. One chapter later, Genesis eight fourteen. Noah left the ark on the 27th day of the second month of the following year. So over a year, 370 something days, he was in the ark. Not just 40, but over a year. You could go on and on. There's plenty of fascinating little intricate details in this story that we may skip over. But, but my point is this. Don't take this story for granted just because you can picture childhood coloring pages of this story. Now, the, it can be easy to kind of get, get, get sidetracked, but the most important things I, I want you to see uh, are, are what's, what's the big, clear picture. I, I want to see the big picture. What's, what's God trying to communicate? What's He telling us? Not trying. He is communicating. We're the ones struggling. Of all that Noah's story teaches, it's crystal clear that He, that he doesn't want us to miss this. Our wickedness deserves judgment. When you read Noah's story, the, the, the big thing that you can't miss is that God sent a flood on the earth to wipe out people because of their sin. That's the thing you can't miss. That's the big picture. Our wickedness deserves destruction. It's hard to find a more emphatic statement about the wickedness of humanity than Genesis 6, 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Like, I feel like he bolded it, underlined, circled, highlighted, like they're really bad. That's what he's trying to say. Not trying, I said that again. He is saying they're really bad. Every, only, continually. This is not a light statement. It's not just that their actions were bad, their intentions were bad. It's not just that, that in their heads they, they had a problem, it was in their hearts. What they loved was evil. And it wasn't just that some of the things they loved or some of the things about their hearts were bad. It says that, that every intention was continually evil. They are really bad. God declared that they must be judged for their sin. Because of their sin, judgment must come. God had created the world as good. He had declared it was good. It was, in fact, very good. And yet because of sin, because of humanity's rebellion against God, we have, humanity has corrupted the world. God would be unjust and ultimately unloving if He just allowed sin to go on forever. It would be an unholy and ultimately unloving thing for Him to not judge the wickedness of humanity. If God lets sin run rampant, He is is, allowing things to be hurt, to be damaged. That's not love. It's not holy. God had made a promise that He ultimately would defeat Satan. So if He does not stop sin, if He does not stop wickedness, if He does not intervene on the path of His children, He's breaking His promises. He's not keeping what He has said. So God rightly declared judgment in Genesis 6, 13. God said to Noah, "...I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them on the earth." And the verse 17, "...for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh." In which is the breath of life under heaven everything that is on the earth shall die that is a a stark can't miss it clear picture of god bringing judgment for sin now this is the point in the story where i have to kind of scratch my head a little bit and go why do we paint our nurseries (laughs) with with the story now i get it i mean a, a boat and animals it's you know beautiful and this is a great story to teach to your kids. We're going to do it tonight. Don't don't mishear me. We absolutely think this is a wonderful story for kids. But if you read through Genesis with fresh eyes, through Genesis 6 to 9, this is a lot closer to a horror film than a nursery rhyme. This is this is judgment of God coming upon the sinfulness of humanity. Don't, don't, don't mishear, don't paint over with pastel colors the story of Noah's Ark and miss the wickedness of our hearts and the holiness of our God who brings judgment. For sin. Our wickedness deserves destruction. Another mistake I think we make in, in Noah's Ark and, and all kinds of other stories, especially in Genesis but everywhere, is that we can get so fixated on the the little the little details. I mean it is mind-boggling to think about all the animals and all the food it would take and how they survived in there for a year and, and all that. And that, that's cool. You can go down that rabbit trail and, and think about all those details. But but if if you spend time on that, spend more time on this. We are wicked. Humanity is wicked. The whole reason there's an ark is the sin of the world, and what God has done, to send did through by sending a flood. Our wickedness deserves destruction. Without meaning to, we can underemphasize and, un, and not focus on what the Bible does, which is the wickedness of our humanity. And what's clear in this story is that the flood doesn't solve the condition of our hearts. And that doesn't just come up after the flood. Noah, Noah sins after the flood. But even in the middle of this story, we read Genesis 8:21. God said, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. They, they just got out of the boat. The, the, they haven't even started a whole new generation yet. And God says, the intention of your heart is evil. Noah's heart is evil. That his children, his children's wives, he's saying, you still have a heart problem. We as humanity still have a heart problem. Our wickedness still deserves destruction. The wording from Genesis 8, 21 mirrors 6, 5, where he talks about the intentions of our hearts. The flood didn't change our hearts. We still have a heart problem. Genesis 6, 5 and Genesis 8, 21 sound a lot like what we read in the New Testament, in Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For the wages of sin is death, 623, or 323. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The flood didn't change the condition of the human heart, which means what was true of Noah's generation is still true of our generation. Not just Noah's generation deserved destruction, our generation is wicked to the point that we deserve the same judgment that noah's generation got and what is that judgment it's death 623 romans 623 the wages of sin is death this is one of the connections if you show look where noah shows up throughout the bible and other places as it goes on multiple times the new testament references back to this story to talk about the judgment we deserve and the judgment that's coming one of those is in matthew 24 jesus warns his people that like noah's generation was unprepared so are many who do not know Him. They are unprepared for judgment. Or 2 Peter 3 talks about how in that generation they were judged by a flood. The next generation, the future generation, is going to be judged by a fire. The judgment problem is not a problem just back in Genesis 6. It's a problem today. And I imagine for most of us, we, we understand the wickedness. We see the wickedness of our world. We have interconnected through technology and all the videos that are all around the world, at any moment, you can see wickedness all around, from Russia invading Ukraine to all the fights over abortion and on guns and schools that are just so many things you can look around and say, if, if a news reporter, if you turn on the news tonight and a news reporter summarized, paraphrased Genesis 6-5 and said about today, they said, you know, this is today, you're watching today, the wickedness of people is great all over the place, and it seems like every intention of the thoughts of people's hearts are only evil continually you would nod along and say, yeah, I see that in the world. I see how our world is wicked and destructive and evil, and they're doing all kinds of terrible things. You would say, yeah, I see that out there. But like I always say, the problem is not out there only. The problem is also in here. The question uh, for us today is, yes, I think you, you won't have a hard time admitting that, the, that our generation, the world is evil, but can we also admit that our hearts, the intentions of our own hearts, is evil and wicked? Do we see the wickedness not just out there, but also in our selfishness, our tendency to lie, to cover up what we want, our pride, repeating sins over and over, coming back and saying again and again, I keep doing the same thing, whether it be an outright addiction or just a habit that we are stuck in, a bad habit, and we just keep going back to over and over again, do you see our depravity? Do you see the sin that is in our hearts? And if you see it, do you recognize what we deserve? We, like the generation of Noah, we deserve destruction. When we read Noah's Ark story in Genesis 6-9, to we're, we're, we're not primarily supposed to be thinking about uh, you know, coloring pages. <laughs> we're supposed to be thinking about our hearts, our wickedness, and the destruction we deserve. Genesis makes very clear the problem of humanity, the problem of our world. But it also paints a pretty amazing picture of a solution. And just like the the problem was similar in Genesis 6 to it is today, the solution is also similar. Here's what I want you to see also in Noah's story is how God handles the problem. And the way He handles it is this. Through one and the same act, God brings both judgment and salvation. Through one and the same act, God brings both judgment and salvation. God took a decisive, clear, powerful action in response to what the heart, the intentions of humanity are. He brought a flood, a devastating flood that wiped out everybody except for eight people. And in that same act, he brought salvation to those eight people. The flood was the way God judged the sin of humanity and the way God saved Noah and his family. Genesis 7.22 paints just a a graphic picture of what the flood accomplished. Everything on dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. So God, Genesis, as the story goes on, He did accomplish what He said He was going to do. He brought judgment over all of the creation. And what's incredible is you read the, the wording there, this is an a, a undoing of what God had done in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates the world, he, he names out the things, how He made the birds of the air and the animals of the land. And so here, He's reversing it. He's undoing it. He's cleaning the slate. He's getting rid of what was evil. He's going back. That's the judgment that He brings. He's undoing it. But He's not just going back, He's also going forward. He brings salvation. Genesis 6-8 is a key verse for understanding this whole passage rightly 6 8 says but noah found favor in the eyes of god the same sal- same judge same act that brought judgment over the world and undid so many of the wickednesses of the world also brought salvation to noah and to his family how, how did noah get it how did how did noah get to be that spot did he, did he work really hard did he, did he earn his 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 place No, it says he found favor. Favor, the word here can be translated the same. It's the same word used as for grace. This is a gift from God. God graciously gave Noah and his family salvation. God God had to save Noah. Noah could not save Noah. Noah would not have built a boat. Noah would not have gotten in a boat. He would have had no idea this was coming if God had not saved him. But God saved Noah. Everyone else was wiped off the face of the earth, but Noah was saved. Genesis seven twenty three. only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. Rescued, saved by grace. Hebrews 11 helps us not to miss how, how Noah got to this point, how Noah was saved. Genesis 11, I mean, uh, Hebrews eleven seven by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So how was Noah saved? Same way you and I are saved, by faith. It was Noah's faith, through grace, that he was saved. And God makes it clear with one of my favorite little details out of Genesis about how Noah was saved, Genesis 7, 16. It says, the Lord shut the door. The Lord's in charge. He's the one that put them in the ark. He's the one that's rescued them. He's the one that saved them. God saves his people. And in doing so, he reestablishes a covenant relationship with Gods with his people. A covenant shows up as an important theme all through the Bible. A covenant is a formal and binding relationship between two people. So if you go over to Genesis 31, uh, this shows up over and over, but just one example, uh, Jacob and Laban had been fighting uh, about all kinds of little things. And so they get together and they decide to make a covenant. And each of them has, has an agreement they're going to make. Jacob is going to take care of Laban's daughters and provide for them and love them. And Laban's going to stay on his side. They draw a line, say, you're over there, I'm over here. And they're, they're, that's the agreement. That's the covenant, the binding agreement they're going to make. And the way they remember that covenant is they do a visual sign. They put rocks on the place, right on the line of the border, and they say, you're over here, I'm over here. And these rocks remind us of the promises we've made, the binding promise of covenant of relationship, that you're going to be over here and I'm going to be over here. That's the, the covenant that they make. And what's remarkable about the Bible is that God makes a covenant, a relationship with us. He takes the initiative, and He makes a relationship with us. We read in Genesis 8 that it says, um, And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. And as you hear that, if you know the word wind in, in, in Hebrew, is the same word as the word for spirit, ruah. You remember, hey, how did the world start? Genesis 1-2, the spirit, or wind, spirit, was of god was hovering over the face of the water so god is is now redoing creation he he created it he destroyed creation with the flood and now he's redoing it and what do they do he tells them to be fruitful and multiply he reminds them genesis 9 6 that you're created in the image of god he redoes creation he remakes it why so that he can continue in relationship with his people he makes a covenant a relationship with them and how do you know it's a covenant? How do you remember the covenant? What's the sign that he does? He puts a rainbow in the sky. He says, every time you see that, you remember my covenant. Genesis 9, 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. By that, by the, the covenant was that he will not destroy the earth by a flood again, but it's also this everlasting relationship. He says, you're my people and I'm your God. And what's incredible is that it's not conditional. He doesn't tell Noah, if you do this, I will be your God. He just says, the bow reminds us of the everlasting covenant. God has made a relationship. He brought judgment for sin. He brought salvation for his people and he put a sign up in the clouds so that we would remember the relationship that we have with God. God is holy, God is gracious, and he does this an amazing way to bring salvation. And this is not the only time God did this, is it? Through one and the same act, God brings both judgment and salvation. He did that through the flood, and he did that on the cross. He did that on the cross. Romans 3:23: for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. "...whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. In one and the same act, Jesus on the cross, God brought judgment and He brought salvation. Our sins, our hearts are wicked. We deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth in a flood. And yet, by God's incredible grace... He poured out His wrath, His judgment, not on us, but on His Son, Jesus Christ. Wrath was poured out. He did bring judgment. He brought the full penalty that our sins deserved. But instead of it landing on you and me, for all who believe, it landed on His Son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, that one same, the one and the same act, Jesus on the cross, we have salvation. We can be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8 says. Remember how God closed the door on the ark? My incredibly biblically literate and great Bible student of a wife pointed this out to me this week. John 10.7, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus is the door. He's the one that puts us in the ark. He's the one that brings salvation to us. Because of the cross, we can enter into a relationship with Him. We can have a covenant, a binding relationship with God. Jesus is the way that we have a new covenant. Hebrews 11 says He's the mediator of a new covenant since death has taken place to redeem His people. God has brought us into relationship. We can know the one true God because our sins have been paid for and our salvation has been paid. And what do we do as those who have been saved? Just like Noah, we go through the water. 1 Peter 3 makes this connection for us and compares what happens in the days of Noah to our baptism. That just as Noah went through the waters and was saved, so also our baptism represents how we come from death to life. The judgment for our sins happens, and then we come out of the waters in life. We go through the water, just like Noah did, and come into a life of salvation. Through one and the same act flood and the cross god brings judgment and god brings salvation and there's one more still to come god will bring a final judgment on this world he will judge all sin on this world and that's pro- how and why and when exactly all that happens is one of the most debated things in the bible but we know it's coming we know christ is coming back he will bring judgment and he will bring salvation full and final salvation for his children and we will enter into a new creation. God will once again redo what he's done in Genesis, but it's not just going backwards, it's going forward. Revelation speaks of the new heaven and the new earth that he's going to provide. God has made a way for us to be in relationship, not just today, but for eternity. And the way he did it was through his son on the cross. How then do we live? The problem is in Genesis six, the solutions in Genesis six or nine, I bet the, Response is also there too. Those who have been saved by faith in God walk in obedience to God. Those who have been saved by faith in God walk in obedience to God. God's grace comes first in the story of Noah. Noah found favor with God. That's Genesis 6-8. And 6-9 is his response. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with god hebrews eleven seven 7 continues from where we read earlier that noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith noah was holy he was obedient he responded to god in obedience because he had been saved the evidence of noah's faith was in how he lived if you read the story one of the, the overwhelming things you see in noah's character is his obedience genesis um, 6 22 noah did all this And he did all that the Lord commanded. Again, Genesis 7, 5. Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him to do. Noah was righteous and blameless. He was walking with God. What an incredible picture of who he is. Uh, One one Bible scholar, Michael Kruger, wrote this. The Bible uses this category of a righteous man for believers who display a marked consistency and faithfulness in walking with God. Of course, this doesn't mean that the people are perfect, sinless, or able to merit their own salvation. It simply means that the Spirit is at work in such a way that they bear steady fruit in their lives. Can that be said of us? How did, how did Noah bear fruit? How was he obedient? God was in him. God was working. And he was bearing fruit. It was the overflow of his relationship was leading to obedience. Noah continually did all that God commanded. And do you notice what Noah said through all this? you go back and look and see what Noah said. Nothing. Noah doesn't speak all the way through the process of building an ark. Not that he doesn't speak. It's not recorded. You know what I mean? He probably wasn't silent, but he was the Bible doesn't record his words all the way through the flood and I mean, all the way through the building of the ark and all the way through the flood. And the idea here is that Noah was going to obey whatever God said. Whatever God says, I'll do it. He's not going to he's not fighting back. He's not asking questions. He's just nodding and going. You say build it? Yes, sir. I'm going. He's building the ark. It's a picture of silent obedience. You can't help but think of Isaiah 53, 7, prophesying about Christ. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. I wonder if this this kind of picture could be written of us and our faith. If you have faith, what we talked about all the way through the book of James, it's going to go to work. It's going to have a response. It's going to to lead to obedience. Could Genesis 6-9 be said of you, you're a righteous person, blameless in your generation, and you walk with God? Is the Spirit at work in your heart in such a way that it's bearing steady fruit? Not that you're perfect, not that you always have everything all figured out, but steady fruit, a regular habit of fruit that can come only by the Spirit. And does it lead to obedience? Does it lead to following Him? And even better, to silent obedience. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I, when I see things in the Bible, I want to argue with God. That's fruitless. That's fruitless. Are there things that you are arguing with God about? Are you coming to God and say, Yeah, I see your commands here in the Bible. I just don't like them, and I'm going to tell you about it. Or are you willing to say, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Are you challenging God? Or are you willing to follow Him? You know as I was challenged by this in my own walk with the Lord, I was also challenged in the way we parent our kids. One of the primary things we demand of our children rightly is obedience, is it not? It is right and good that we tell our kids, you must obey because I am your parent. That is a good and holy thing. But we should make sure we get the demands in the right order. Faith has to come first. Grace has to be experienced first and then obedience. There may be levels of obedience in our children at an early age, even before they personally experience faith in God. But if you're a parent, there's no doubt, you've seen their disobedience. They have a disobedient heart. So, so what do we do with that? What do we, how do we get to the heart of our children? Do we just get louder? Do we just get harsher and harsher in our punishments? Sometimes, but does that change their hearts? No, it doesn't change their hearts. What we need to change is their desires, the things that they love. So yes, we call for obedience, and at the same time, we display the greatness of our God. Do you know what changes hearts? God does. God does. What we should be calling for in our children is for them to see how awesome God is, to see His beauty and His majesty and His love, because that's what changes their hearts, because that's what changed ours. We will never be obedient to the Father if we don't know the Father, if we haven't seen Him for who He is. If we don't know the glory and the grace and the majesty and the splendor of Jesus Christ, we will not love Him, and therefore we will not obey Him. And our children are no different. When we parent, we should be displaying the greatness of God, showing them, teaching them, explaining to them the greatness of God, and then calling for their obedience in response to who God is. God has called us and given us the opportunity to know him. If we just have the fuel, it will lead to our obedience. Imagine asking a teenage child to go and, and cut the grass, and you give, them, you give them the lawnmower, you give them instructions, you say, hey, this is, this is where I want you to cut it, and I want you to be done all these different ways, I want it to be just like this, and, and I want you to be done by this time. Imagine leaving and coming back, and the teenager is just sitting there sweating and has done none of it, and you're like, what is the deal? I gave you clear instructions, and you realize they say, hey, there's, there's no gas in the lawnmower, There's no gas can. There's no gas. They had no fuel to accomplish the thing you're asking them to do. For God, for us, for what He asked us to do, He asked us to obey Him. But He gave us the fuel to do it. He put His Spirit inside of us by faith. And we pray the same for our children. If we want to follow God, we have to know God. If we want to be obedient, we have to know Him. If we've been saved, it will lead to our obedience. I want you to see the holiness. I want you to see the justice of God, the grace of God, in the story of Noah, so that it will transform your life, so that God's grace, God's power, God's majesty will change you to be somebody who follows him. Because through one and the same act, God brought both judgment and salvation. There's one final thing I think you may miss, we may miss, easy for me to miss, in the story of Noah. Genesis 9.13, the NIV and many others translate the word rainbow, because that is what he's talking about. But the, the, the word he actually uses is just the word, the common word for bow. So we read this, Genesis 9:16, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember my everlasting covenant. So when he sees, when he talks about a bow, what he's talking about, what he's picturing, what the first hearers of this story would have heard is that the bow is a weapon of war. A bow is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, something you would use in war to fight. And God has taken his bow. and which way is it facing? He's, he's set it down. It's it's just it's laying at rest, it's not it's not being used. God is no longer aiming his bow at humanity. God has taken his bow and he's set it in the clouds. He is no longer taking out his wrath, pouring his wrath out on us, but instead the bow, by sitting in the clouds the way it is, is actually facing up. Now I don't want to make too much of this because I you know this this could be over over sentimentalizing this, but I I think this is here. It's a beautiful picture in the Bible. Sal Lloyd Jones in the uh, Jesus' storybook Bible uh, says it this way, God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was, pointing, was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. Jesus, God, God would take aim at sin and destruction and everything that deserves to be judged. He would take aim at that one more time. But instead of facing down, he was facing up. The arrow was not pointed at you and me. The arrow went into the heart of his own son. That's the next place that the judgment comes on the sin of the world. God has made a way for us to be saved in one and the same act by sending his son to die on the cross so that our sins could be judged and that we could be brought to salvation. That's what we want to tell our kids tonight. That's what a story I hope you know That God has made a way by grace for you to be saved. And all who know him, follow him and respond in obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Noah, for what you have done in your creation to bring judgment, rightly so, upon the world, but also to bring salvation. Father, we confess that uh, apart from your work, we wouldn't know this story at all. We wouldn't know what you've done. We wouldn't understand your majesty and your splendor and your grace. God, we would be, just be blind to it all. And yet you've made a way for us to know you, and so we praise you. God, I, I pray for any who do not yet know your grace, that we would see how wonderful you are. We'd see how wicked our sin is, and we would repent. God, I pray for those who do know you, who are not walking in obedience. God, that you would transform our lives, that our eyes would be opened and that we would follow you today because of how great you are. God, bless this time as we sing. Bless this week as we continue to study your word. And may we continue to show your grace to those all around us so that all may know that we don't have to be thirsty, but we can be satisfied in you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.